Okay, here we go. Welcome back to the Rest of Us Tennis Podcast. As always, I'm your host that goes by the name of Coach Midmajor. I'm feeling it tonight. Feeling good. Coach Midmajor is on a nice little roll at the moment. This past weekend, South Africa won the World Cup Rugby. On top of that, I went 7-6 and six against Power 5 teams um, at a tournament I played. And on Sunday, I whipped that Duke coaching staff on the golf course. Yes, sir. I will take the small victories that come my way all day long. But let me backtrack and discuss in detail. What a gritty performance by South Africa in the Rugby World Cup. I tell you what, they they might not have electricity in South Africa, but at least they got the Boca. World champs back to back. Full, Full disclosure. I watched the entire game while coaching two very tricky matches at the same time this past weekend. For the record, I won both those matches. Um, to be honest, it must be one of those benefits of being a mid-major coach. We definitely know how to multitask. Um, but congrats to the Springboks. Unbelievable feat there going back-to-back as the world champs. Secondly, like I mentioned... Uh, went 7-6 and six against Power 5 competition this past weekend. Once again, for the sake of full disclosure, except for Nebraska, who had their full team there, most Power 5 teams had their middle to lower part of a lineup there. You know, bottom of a lineup, bench players in attendance. But here's a brutal truth, or a logical measuring stick for Power 5 teams. If your three through eight players are leaking matches against mid-major teams not in the top 15 in the nation, then it is probably a red flag. Here's the reality of it, Power 5 coaches. Your number 678 should be getting Ws over mid-majors who aren't in the top 50s, number one and twos. I can't spin it another way. If not, you're probably going to be bottom of a pile in the power five ranks what that means is you're not going to make the tournament and what that means is 15 to 20 teams at the power five level should be on the hot seat the goal at the power five level is to make the team but um you know overall a great week in tennis but in particular i enjoyed it every time we rubbed out a power five team last but not least I mentioned the ass-whipping I gave the Duke coaching staff on the golf course on Sunday. First of all, congrats to Daniel Leitner, the assistant coach from Duke. Uh, He got inducted into the Hall of Fame at the University of South Alabama. Great honor. Congratulations. On a side note, those Duke fellas, they might be Power 5 coaches, but I can tell you what, they are definitely not power five golfers. Start, start working on those short games, guys. Um, okay, so what do we have over here on Halloween? Uh, speaking of Halloween, this is a scary part of the season or scare, scary part of the year for me personally. Things have been building up, building up. You start feeling good about it. And all of a sudden, you're in an eight-hour week. And um, 
who knows what's going to happen in the next two months, but I'll, I'll actually circle back to that later on in this episode. Um, tonight, tonight, I want to start with the ITA Fall Nationals, and then I want to ramble on about a couple of issues. Um, I say issues, but it's probably pet peeves that I would like to start a conversation about. Those issues are the recruiting period, the six-month grace period for competition, and then finally, the eight-hour practice week. Hey, man, whatever I say tonight, you might not agree with me. Hey, you might agree with me. I don't know. Um, Either way, I really am not bothered. So here we go. Let me actually start off and get started here with Halloween. Um, Because Halloween is one of my pet peeves. Now, 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 having said that, I had a blast with my kids tonight going trick-or-treating. I even, I even wore a damn costume. But there's one thing I can guarantee you as long as I'm a college coach. I will never, and let me repeat that, I will never have or run a Halloween practice. You know what a Halloween practice is. Um, it's where players and coaches rock up in a costume or sit around carving pumpkins. I actually saw that. I actually saw that starting to flood social media, and you've seen it in the past. I'm sorry, man. I cannot do it. I won't do it. Now, a lot of people have tried to convince me that it's part of team bonding and having fun. Yeah, I mean, maybe you're right, but that's not for me. My idea of fun or team bonding is grinding out a long three-hour match with a player or a tough track workout where everyone is so tired they can't say a word, myself included. But then again, that's me. There's no costume for me when I'm around my team. There's not going to be any carving pumpkins and dancing with a hula hoop around my waist in the name of fun. End of story. Don't know what else to say about it. Now, 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 people have told me as well, they said, hey, you have to evolve. You know, you got to evolve and you got to adapt to this generation. They, they, this generation, they have a high priority on having fun and life experiences. And, and, and to be honest, in defense of myself, I have evolved. It, what, what evolved. I definitely have evolved. I mean, I ask people now every day, every morning, how they doing. Um, but, but seriously, modern day student athletes, they definitely need a softer touch. But Halloween practices is not for me. That's a leap of faith that is too great for me. I wonder, I wonder if um, TCU had a Halloween practice. I'm actually going to check social media and find that out. But um, damn, man, that Halloween, that touched a nerve, didn't it? But let's go ahead and move on. Let, let's, let's talk a little bit about fall nationals. Big tournament coming up. Um, it's kind of signals the end of the fall semester over here. Looks like it's going to be a great tournament. Plenty of quality quality players out there. Not a great representation in singles for the mid-majors with only one participant. In doubles, we have five teams. I say we, us mid-majors. A little bit better in doubles, and I will circle back to that in a second. 
but let's go ahead and start it off with singles. Congrats to Noyeshka Brink from Wyoming, who snuck through the Mountain West Regional. I'm not sure which Power 5 programs are in that region, besides Utah and Colorado, but either way, great job by her. I'm also, on top of that mid-major participant, I'm also curious to see how Selma de Ubri from Lynn University does in this tournament. Looks like she's got a career-high WTA ranking of 412, so obviously, obviously she can play. Only 20 years old, I wonder if Division 1 is on the cards for her, or if she's got too many skeletons in the closet with um, her past playing experience. If she does have Division 1 eligibility, then someone has probably snatched her up already, or, or potentially the bidding war will follow if she performs at this tournament. But good luck to those two players. In doubles, quite a few mid-major teams. Denver, FIU, Grand Canyon, Temple, Santa Barbara, all have teams that qualified. It's going to be real exciting to see how they perform, and I will follow them closely. On top of that, you know, I would love to see how the team, the doubles team from Kaiser University does. That is Upsia and Vidanovic. That Upsia, she had a sister, I, th I think that's her sister, that played for Georgia State, State a bunch of years ago, 10, 15 years ago. She was a real quality player, and I think she ended up making it to the semifinals at NCAAs one year. Um, for the record, for the record, I don't, I don't classify Pepperdine or Ivy League schools as mid-majors on this podcast. So, one singles participant and five doubles teams competing. So let me, let me talk doubles. I'm not surprised to see more doubles teams than singles teams in the draw from the mid-majors. And here's my theory, and I'm sticking to it. Um, I'm not saying it's right, but this is my theory, and, 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 I, and I will stick to it. Good coaches can influence doubles outcomes more significantly than in singles. In singles, a talent gap most of the time is too great for a coach to have an effect on outcome. And I'm comparing mid-major to power five. And you can compare it within power five to power five or mid-major to mid-major. It's my belief that in doubles, coaches or coaching, as it pertains to structure, positioning, formations, decision-making, can influence the outcome. 99, 99% of the time, show me an organized, structured doubles point or a consistent, organized, structured, structured doubles point over the course of a season, and I will show you a coach who knows what they are doing. And yes, yes, I might be biased, but I believe there is more quality coaches at the mid-major level than at the power five level. Or rather, let me rephrase that, or rather, more coaches at the mid-major level who understands and coaches the X and O's in singles and in doubles. 
They do it better than the Power 5 coaches because that's the only way to potentially make some gains and get ahead in order to be competitive. Therefore, yes, not surprised that it is more teams in doubles and singles. Now the counter argument or the rebuttal will be or usually is, yes, yes, but, but one set and no ad scoring, that's a great equalizer. Rubbish. You still have twice the amount of talent. And why in single, singles 10-point tiebreakers do the favorites always come out on top? It's because, like I said, coaching can bridge the gap in doubles, but not so much in singles. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Okay, let's, let's go ahead and move on. Um, recruiting periods or recruiting windows. It sounds like this is a hot topic, and I am speaking very much off the cuff here since I am not well versed on this topic. To me, it sounds like mostly Power 5 coaches want to establish clearly defined recruiting windows for tennis with XYZ dead periods, etc. Out of principle, I want to oppose anything Power 5 coaches suggest, since it probably benefits them and it will not benefit the rest of us. Of us. But in all seriousness, my vote is to keep the status quo and therefore keep on choosing our own recruiting schedule. Flexibility is a great thing and it's actually truly unique to our sport. And from a selfish standpoint, the money I have, or rather the little bit of money that I have available for recruiting for those 10 to 15 days, um, I can recruit a year. I mean, I'd love to recruit a lot more, but, but, but those are the resources that I have. That little bit of money, I would prefer, I prefer not to be boxed in and rather have the freedom to operate as I see fit. To be honest, what's, what's the argument? I mean, I'm asking because, like I say, I'm not too, too well-versed on this. What's the argument for these recruiting windows? And, and then my next question, my follow-up question is, out of curiosity, how much time in reality are you Power 5 coaches spending on the road recruiting? If it's more than 30 or 40 days a year, then I question your sales skills or, or ability to close recruits if you're not top 15 in the nation. If it's out of convenience, you know, just because you're tired of life on the road or, you know, um, the grind is getting to you, then shame on you. Find a different job or send one of your assistants to hit the road. I mean, you got to. I would love, like I mentioned that, I would love to know how much time Power 5 coaches spend on the road recruiting and or how much money is actually spent on recruiting in dollars. I tell you what, I tell you what, make me a power five coach or power four coach. I would knock out 50 to 100 days a year easily in my sleep. And that would be on top of my second assistant coach setting up shop in Europe, setting up shop in Europe from May until August without setting foot on American soil until those top 500 WT players are lined up. Man, I would get that second assistant, <laughs> I would get that second assistant a tiny little apartment somewhere in Slovakia 
and that will be the home base and that second assistant will be grinding it over there for three months. Recruiting windows, if I was a Power 5 coach, I'll tell you what, recruiting windows would be the last thing on my mind. Um, one rule, one rule they should install though with regards to recruiting windows or dead periods and they should install this immediately. There should be a dead period during Wimbledon and US Open. That's unless you are top five team in the nation. I'll repeat that. There should be a dead period <laughs> during Wimbledon and the US Open unless you are top five team in the nation. I'm tired. I'm tired of seeing all these coaches take expense paid holidays to these two tourneys under the under the false pretenses of recruiting. Come on, enough of that now. You guys, if you're not top five in the nation, you should not be recruiting at Junior Wimbledon and at the Junior US Open. Enough of that. That's got to stop. But like I mentioned, not a big deal to me, to be honest. But the more I talk about it and the more I think about it, why mess with it? Leave it alone, man. No need to follow in the footsteps of volleyball or softball or baseball or whoever you're basing it on. You know, there's nothing wrong with our recruiting windows and recruiting calendar. To be honest, I can actually point out two issues that really bother me that we should change ASAP or immediately. The first one is that six-month grace period rule, or some call it the nine-month rule. Listen, I mean, just listen to how ridiculous this is. I was not even a top 75 team last year and I had two to three girls who had to sit out a couple of dates because they played after their grace period. I mean how ridiculous is this uh, for a team who's not even in the top 50 or top 75. I want to know I want to know who the dipshit is who came up with this rule. This rule drives me absolutely nuts and probably since I'm battling this grace period again for next August why not simplify? One year after graduation to play pro, and then you have to start with university or start paying a penalty. Enough of this BS of six months to play. One year to enroll. Therefore, potentially, you have to sit in the corner for six months or we will punish you. Basically, my interpretation is that the NCAA is saying the following. You cannot compete in your sport for six months, even though by competing you most likely won't make money or you probably lose money in the process. But once you get to university, it will be okay to get compensated in college via NIL or via some slush fund, etc. for a job, a duty or obligation that you most likely will not fulfill. I mean, this is crazy. Get rid of this damn six-month grace period and tie it into the one year you have to enroll after graduation, plain and simple. And to be honest, not that I want to, but I can tie this into prize money as well. Now, now don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm not in the camp that advocates for NIL or for players to keep their prize money. You know, the rules are rule. Uh, especially with prize money. You can't accept prize money. It is what it is. 
But if someone had to press me and say, okay, coach mid-major, you've got to accept one of these two. You've got to be all for NIL or you've got to be all for prize money. i tell you what, though, I would choose prize money. At least these players are going out and they are using their skill sets and they're getting rewarded for it, for a job they're actually doing instead of this NIL BS. Uh, I can probably live with that. Uh, you know, maybe that way, you know, Fiona Crawley can keep that money. Maybe that way Diana Schneider will still be in college. Maybe that way we can lure a lot more higher level players to college. I mean, that makes sense to me. And uh, like I say, I'm not advocating for that because uh, I refuse to ignore the value of a cost-free education and all the benefits that come along with it. But, um, I mean, some of these rules are a little bit silly if you think about it, isn't it? But last but not least, and I feel like I'm getting a little bit worked up over here. Last but not least, I have the eight-hour practice week. I absolutely hate the eight-hour week. Right when you think you are gaining some momentum within your season, the NCAA goes and ties your hands behind your back. Now, some coaches love the eight-hour week. They love the downtime. Yeah? Some coaches say their teams are self-motivated and they will keep things rolling. Well, good for you guys. Speaking for myself, I hate downtime. And I can guarantee you nothing good happens on my teams unless I'm there directing traffic. This eight-hour week puts coaches in a tough spot because, yeah, you have to honor the rule. But we all know in the sport of tennis how ridiculous this concept is. And to tie it into the conversation of mid-major versus power five, yeah, once again, this is uh, you know where, where Power 5 teams get ahead. And the reason I'm saying that is, at the mid-major level, the risk versus reward is not there. You know, we don't get paid enough to take unnecessary risk to press our teams and to press our players during these eight-hour weeks. You know, it, it's, yeah, I'm sure we're all creative and we try and manipulate it so we can spend time out there. But, but you know... How far are you going to go before you're vulnerable? I mean, the reward just isn't there. At the Power 5 level, you know, yeah, you're a little bit more fortunate. Probably a higher um, quality athlete, talented athlete. Therefore, they're a little bit more self-motivated so they can keep things rolling. And like, yeah, I'm sure there's a lot of coaches at Power 5 where they feel that pressure, where they got to be pretty creative during that eight-hour week and probably push the envelope quite a bit. But um, here's my suggestion. My suggestion is that while kids are in school for the academic year, the practice week is 20 hours from beginning to end. I mean, don't let me go down this rabbit hole. But, but on average, we are investing approximately 50K, $50,000 a year into each player. Why not have them earn it instead of cutting their work week by 60%? during certain times of the year because of rules that is meant for other sports. I mean, hell, I'm up for a 25 to 30 hour a week. If I was a decision maker, um, 
players, I mean, student athletes, players, they now have the freedom to transfer, to move on to the next school. If they don't like the workload, they can transfer. You know, if they want to um, work more, you know, go to a school where they work a lot and, and vice versa. To be honest, it might even be better for business as the 12-hour-a-week kids will end up with the 12-hour-a-week coaches and the 30-hour-a-week kids will end up with the 30-hour-a-week coaches. You know, um, probably better for business. Uh, a lot fewer disgruntled players out there. But I mean, seriously though, how ridiculous does it sound? You know, and I'm changing, shifting gears here. How ridiculous does it sound that we are a pathway to the pros and we are advertising the living daylights out of it? We're a developmental system, pathway to the pros. Or how ridiculous is it when a Power 5 coach says, we prepare you for the pros. But then at the same time, we turn around and we say, yeah, we are capped at 20 hours a week. And sometimes we capped at eight hours a week. After that, you are on your own. Um, but don't worry, you're still better off than that kid who bypasses college and is grinding 30 to 40 hours a week. That kid who's got the same talent level. I mean, come on. I mean, that con this conversation gets a little bit ridiculous after a while. Um, it just turns into smoke and mirror salesmanship, you know, and it has that used car salesman feel to it, doesn't it? And bottom line is, I mean, I don't know how you change these rules, and I and understand understand why these rules are in place, but they they meant for football, basketball, baseball, or whoever. You know, it, it's 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 these. These silly rules just handicap the development of our sport, big picture. To be honest, I don't know. I don't know why I turned all angry during this episode. It must be that eight-hour week that has, has me rattled like this. I'll take a deep breath over here because, like I said, beginning of the episode, man, I'm on a nice little roll over here. And to be honest, as scary as November and December is for me with regards to my team, this is a... Part of a year I love. We got Thanksgiving coming up. I bloody love Thanksgiving. Um, I'm an NFL guy. I'm a football guy. A lot of football on the cards. I love Christmas, all that good stuff. Um, it is No Shave November coming up. I bloody love No Shave November. I will not be shaving. Um, end of November, beginning of December, I'm not going to shave. I'm going to grow a big-ass beard. And who knows, when Christmas rolls around, I'm going to have a big old Santa Claus looking beard. And I can probably go ahead and moonlight as a Santa Claus to supplement my measly salary, my measly mid-major salary. <laughs> and you, and you mid-major coaches know exactly what I'm talking about. But hey, yeah, on a serious note, man, let me know what you think with regards to the topics or the issues I discussed tonight the recruiting window, the grace period, the eight-hour week. I would love to get your inputs and see if there's anyone out there agreeing with me. In summary, I'll definitely be following the mid-major action at the fall nationals. At the same time, I will brainstorm on how to keep my team engaged and motivated for the next two months. And I'm sure you'll be doing the same. You know, um, 
like I always say, what we do in the next two months will probably define what kind of team will be this upcoming season. But keep up the good fight. Until next time, over and out.